Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us on this Wednesday Live or whenever you happen to be listening, whether it's via podcast on the uh, or on uh, our app or on our website or uh, watching it on Rumble or any of the number of ways that you can access this program. Got a lot to talk about. We're going to be talking later uh, about something which, if you are Catholic, you've probably heard enough about to last the rest of your life, which is active participation. But I wanted to just uh, actually talk about the um, all of the stuff that we do at Mass, the standing, the sitting, the, the kneeling, and where did all those postures come from, and what are their significance? You know, are we just going through the motions, or are we actively participating? Are we conscious about what those things mean? Uh, also, it is September, and this is the month of Our Lady of Sorrows, also known as Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. And i um, going to be talking a little bit about the Seven Sorrows uh, later on in the program, if there's time. Also wanted to um, to cover a couple of verses we did a uh, week before last, I believe, doing ten memorable sayings of Jesus, and we only got through the first eight, so hopefully we can sandwich in the last two. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to begin with the Gospel from last Sunday, as we always do. And we've uh, been going through the ordinary form, Gospels, which uh, last Sunday was the 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And it's a rather long Gospel. In fact, it's the entire 15th chapter of Luke. And, uh, and I have to admit to succumbing to the temptation to give this program uh, a bit, or this episode rather, a bit of a clickbait-style uh, title. I call it The Lost Parables of Luke. And and so they are, not in the sense that they've been misplaced, but that uh, it is a collection of parables on that theme of the lost, a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. And since it's so long, I'm going to actually offer my commentary after each section, rather than, you know, saving it all for the end of the way that we normally do, because, you know, so much time will have elapsed. And I imagine it's going to spill into the next segment. So uh, it, it begins, this is um, the Gospel according to Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all crowding around to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, why were the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law so upset with Jesus associating with these people? Well, the Jewish leaders, of course, were always careful to remain ritually clean, right, according to the Old Testament law. They went out of their way to avoid being defiled by anything, so, you know, to become ritually unclean. In fact, they went beyond the law in their avoidance of certain people and, and situations. Now, by contrast, Jesus often risked defilement by associating with sinners, even touching those uh, who, who had leprosy, you know, because we know that, that when he touched the ten lepers, for example, rather than becoming defiled himself, they were made clean. And that's the point. Our Lord came to offer salvation precisely to sinners and to show how God loves them. He didn't worry, <clears throat> pardon me, about the accusations, uh, regardless of the effect that these uh, you know, rejected people might have on his reputation. So there's a question here for you and me, right in the very first two verses of this gospel. What is it that keeps you or me away from people who need Christ? Moving on now to the parable of the lost sheep. Therefore he told them this parable. 
Which one of you, if you have an hundred sheep and lose one of them, will not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he does find it, he lays it on his shoulders joyfully. Then, when he returns home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who have no need of repentance. So at first glance, it might seem silly to, uh, for a shepherd to leave ninety-nine sheep to go after just one. But the shepherd knew that his ninety-nine sheep would be safe in the sheepfold, whereas the lost sheep, the one who was out in you know, the wilderness, was in danger. And because uh, each sheep was of a high value, the shepherd knew that it was worthwhile to search for that lost sheep. And we have here an illustration of our Lord's compassionate love for the individual sinner. At Jesus associated with sinners because he wanted to bring the lost sheep, these people who were considered unclean even beyond hope, he wanted to bring to them precisely the good news of the kingdom. You know, it's, it's beyond humbling for me to think that before my conversion, God was seeking me. You know, uh, when I was at the RCIA, I remember I had this, you know, it was a, a revelation to me. Not only was there, in fact, a personal God, but that he was personally concerned about yours truly. You know, and, and this is also true for, for all those people uh, for whose conversion you're praying. God's love is still seeking the lost sheep. And the lost sheep, of course, also signifies the sinner who, you know, obeying his own evil inclinations and the temptations of sin, would separate himself from Jesus, right? Someone who's already a believer, but, but, but uh, is shut out from the faithful by mortal sin. And, but our Savior, he doesn't withdraw his love from the wandering soul. Just as he works for the conversion of sinners during his earthly ministry, he still goes after sinners today. Uh, he calls him by his grace, right? So by, uh, for, through the priests and, and through family and friends and, and through, you know, the scriptures, he invites the sinner to return once more to the fold by means of the sacrament of penance. And when Jesus has found the lost sheep, he supports him on, on the road of penance and receives him back with joy. And it's well to remember that Jesus doesn't do this for his own sake. You know, he, he's God. God is, is entirely self-sufficient. He's the only necessary being. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't need the straying sinner. He doesn't need that lost sheep. On the contrary, he seeks him out out of pure love and compassion for the poor sinner himself, who's wandering around in the darkness in, in danger of falling into the abyss of hell. And it, it was because the good shepherd and his friends, as it says in the scriptures, were so anxious about the salvation of that sheep which was in danger that their joy at his return is so great and, and shows itself more outwardly than, than you know, the kind of reserved joy, that calm joy um, that they have over the faithful who, who walk with him without wandering off the path of salvation. Uh, we also learn from this parable the important doctrine that it is God who gives the first impulse to con the conversion or justification of a sinner, that it's God's grace that moves him to be converted, right? That grace which is conveyed through inward inspiration, 
by, you know, uh, the preaching or the warning words of others or the words of Scripture and so on, um, or also even by uh, misfortune or sickness. Those things can be preeminent graces that are, that are helping the, the sinner to, to come back to the right path. And, and it's God who supports the sinner by his grace until he is restored to that state of justification through uh, confession, through the Holy Sacrament of Reconciliation. Also, it mentions that they're about rejoicing in heaven over a repentant sinner. So if the inhabitants of heaven are rejoicing over the conversion of sinners, they must know about it, right? So it follows, therefore, that the angels and saints in heaven not only know about us, but care about us and pray for us. And that, of course, is the doctrine of the communion of saints right there in the Holy Scripture. Uh, Next up is the parable of the lost coin. It's very brief. Or what woman, having ten coins and losing one, would not light a lamp and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it? And when she does find it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin that I lost. In the same way, I tell you, there will be rejoicing among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, the first thing, why does Jesus mention that the woman had ten coins? Uh, and it's literally ten drachmas. Uh, you know, why include that particular detail? She lost a coin. Why do we need to know that she had ten to begin with? You know, it's, it's just a parable. It's a fictional story to make a point. Well, back in those days, Palestinian women traditionally received ten drachmas, these ten silver coins, as a wedding gift. So every one of our Lord's first hearers, the people that heard this parable the, the first time, would have understood immediately that beyond the monetary value of this coin, it would have had a special sentimental value as part of a set of ten coins, which was a wedding gift. You know, just as everybody today would understand uh, how distressing it would be to lose your wedding ring or, you know, to misplace your, your wedding photo album. And, and just as a, a woman in that situation would have rejoiced with her friends at finding the lost coin, so once again, the angels, he says, likewise rejoice over a repentant sinner. And he's emphasizing this comforting truth that each individual is precious to God, and he personally grieves over every loss and rejoices whenever any one of his lost sheep is found and brought into the kingdom or back into the kingdom. And clearly, we should share our Lord's love and concern for the lost, And also rejoice like the angels in heaven at their return. Okay, we have just a a minute or so left in this segment. So I'm going to save the the last part of the gospel for the next segment, which is the the last and longest uh, of the parables in Luke 15, which is the parable of the lost son, also known as the parable of the prodigal son. But since it is um, September... And it is the uh, feast of our, or the, the month that is dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows, also known as Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. When we come back, I'm also going to be saying uh, a quick prayer for tomorrow's feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. So stay with us, and we will be right back after this. Once more, no nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about the lost parables of Luke. And uh, like I said, that's kind of clickbaity, but uh, really it refers to the parables of Luke chapter 15, which are on that, that theme, the lost sheep, the lost coin. And now uh, the final parable, the lost son or the, the prodigal son. Uh, and let's see, it goes like beginning in verse 11. Then he said, pardon me, a man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. That's overindulgence, intemperance, debauchery. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat, but here am I dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, Quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let us celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Now the older son had been out in the field, and on his way back, as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, Your brother has returned, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf, because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry, and when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns, who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fattened calf. He said to him, My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, according to the, the Jewish law of inheritance, the younger son received only half or maybe even a third of what the eldest received. But as long as the father was alive, of course, he was in no way bound to give his sons their future inheritance. But rather than force the prodigal son to stay against his will, the father gave him his inheritance, knowing very well that he was going to squander his fortune. 
the scripture says he went to a distant country, or uh, the old translation, a far country. Now, the, the son hoped to have more liberty the further away he got from his father's house. And we can assume he went to, to Gentile territory, someplace very worldly, because, well, for one thing, they're raising pigs there. Um, uh, but he, he, he chafed under the discipline of his home life. Uh, he, he chafed under his father's supervision. He considered those you know, you know, parental restrictions to be unnecessary and undignified. And he felt sure that he would be happier if he was his own master. Uh, if, if I can just do what I like, then I'll be happy, whatever I want, right? So, so the actual happiness, the calm happiness of his father's home no longer satisfied him. He found it monotonous. He found it uh, uh, wearisome. He longed for the freedom, really, the license uh, of noisy pleasures, thinking that a worldly life would be a happy life. His father warned him, but he cast his warnings to the four winds and defiantly left home. Now he, Scripture says he squandered his inheritance in dissipation. Uh, the old Dewey says in riotous living. All right, so we can imagine he joined himself to to flatterers, to to lewd companions. He indulged in drinking and feasting and presumably other less worthy pleasures. But when the money ran out and the famine came, he found himself in dire need. Right, his friends quickly forsook him when he ran out of money, and they couldn't get anything more out of him. So he had to accept the most degrading situation imaginable uh, for a Jew at that time, which would have been, you know, just to keep himself from dying of starvation, which was feeding pigs, right? Again, uh, according to the Mosaic law, pigs are unclean animals. It's all over Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That means that pigs could not be eaten. They could not be uh, used as a sacrifice, couldn't even touch a pig, you know, to, to protect themselves from, from defilement. A Jew wouldn't even get near one. So for, for a Jew to, start, to stoop to feeding pigs, you know, for a living is, uh, was a great humiliation. And for this young man, to, and not even eating the pigs, he's eating the pigs, wanting to eat the pigs' food, the food that they had touched. It would have been, you know, it's unbelievably degrading. He had truly sunk to the depths, right? He had hit rock bottom, as we say today. Once the proud and headstrong son of a rich father, he's now clothed in rags, defiled and hungry to boot. Um, and so what, is, what does he do? He says, coming to his senses, right, he decided to, to go home. I like the, the, um, the translation, the old Douay translation, which is the English translations of the Latin Vulgate, where it says, Entering into himself, right? It's a profound expression, I think, that he entered into himself because it may be said that he had been outside of himself, or we might say beside himself. He hadn't really thought seriously about himself or his future, clearly. He, he'd been entirely given over to pleasure. He lived carelessly, you know, just, just hand to mouth, day to day. And, okay, and for those of you who are parents and grandparents, you're probably finding this very familiar. But now he's forced to enter into himself, to ask himself, you know, why have I fallen to this miserable condition? What's become of me? And then the scripture tells us he calls to mind uh, his father's house and that even his father's uh, hired workers, like day laborers, were better off than he was. And he recognized that he had only himself to blame 
And so, you know, regretting that he ever left home, he makes the resolution to return at once to his father to confess his sin, to humbly beg to be received by him once more. He even planned what he was going to say. I have sinned, he's going to tell his father, right? In other words, he, he took the blame on himself, didn't try and excuse himself uh, on account of his youth or, you know, the influence of bad companions. I have sinned against heaven, which is to say against God, my heavenly father, and against you, uh, my earthly father. I no longer deserve to be called your son. So you can see how humble uh, this boy had become who was once so proud. He was now willing to serve his father in the lowest place to do any work, if only he would forgive him. And so Jesus says, he got up. Boy, those are some important words right there. It means that he carried out that resolution right away. And I don't doubt that a young man uh, in in that position would say to himself, you know, what are people going to say when they see me coming home with my tail between my legs? But he overcame his pride. And he was resolved to, you know, accept the consequences of his sin if only he could obtain his father's forgiveness. And then scripture tells us while he was yet a far way off, his father saw him. Now that suggests that the father was, was watching, that he was always looking in the hope that he might see his son returning. And when he does see his son, he sees the wretched condition that he's in, he's immediately moved to, to you know, uh, compassion for his son. He orders the servants to bring him a robe and a ring and shoes to restore everything to him that is befitting to a son of the family. And scripture says, then the celebration began. Or in the, the, the Dewey Reem says, and they began to be merry. You know, Jesus is painting this picture of, of gratitude of the son, the joy of the father, and, and the rejoicing of all the, the household over the, the master whom they love, that he would no longer have to grieve over this lost child. But the elder son, uh, he didn't understand. He, didn't, he, he didn't, couldn't wrap his mind around the way his father was treating this returned prodigal. And, and in his frustration, he made out that his father loved his brother more than him. You know, um, and the father says, no, you're always with me. In other words, everything I have is yours. You, you have far more than your brother. And don't you appreciate what you have? Aren't you happy that you never left? That you've always, that, you know, you've always had everything that you need? But it was hard for that older brother to accept his younger brother when he returned, just as it's difficult sometimes for, for, uh, Christians to accept people who have been far from the church and, and, you know, lead these notoriously sinful lives, and then they repent and they want to come back. And they're often held in suspicion when really we should rejoice like the angels when a sinner repents and turns to God and give them the support and the encouragement that they need. I can tell you, when I converted to Catholicism, there were an awful lot of people in, in my little circle in Hollywood that were quite surprised by this. All right. And there were some people on the other side of things who doubted my sincerity. And, and it was difficult, but there it is. The older brother's response is a contrast to the father's response. The father forgave because he was filled with love, and the son, older son refused to forgive because he's bitter about what he perceived as an injustice. So his resentment renders him just as lost to the father's love as his younger brother had been. 
you know, of course, in the context, our Lord is told this parable uh, with the older brother, obviously representing the Pharisees, who were angry and resentful that he was welcoming sinners. And you can imagine what the, they, they must have thought, you know, after all we've sacrificed and, and all we've done and everything that we've done for God, you know, that he would be welcoming these, these sinners and uh, tax collectors and whatnot. It's easy to resent God's forgiveness of others when we, you know, especially when we consider them to be far worse sinners than ourselves. But if self-righteousness gets in the way of rejoicing when others come to Jesus, then we're no better than the Pharisees. And, and that's no nonsense. This is, this is a beautiful and a much beloved parable because through it, God, or Jesus shows us just how willing and even eager Almighty God is to receive the penitent sinner and how happy he is at his return. And, and to put it as plainly as possible, um, you know, uh, I've only got 10 seconds less than it said. It's taken my voice away from me. All right. <laughs> back with a conclusion in a couple of seconds right here. Enjoy these messages, and we'll return with more No-Nonsense Catholic. <clears throat> Welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. I apologize for the little train wreck at the end of the last segment there. Uh, uh, when we went to commercial, our engineer... Richie said to me, Matthew Arnold at a loss for words? <laughs> it's like, what's a sign of the apocalypse, apparently? What I wanted to say, though, just to, to, to sum up, is that God loves us more even than, than we desire to be loved, and he wants to forgive us even more than we want to be forgiven, and that's no nonsense. Okay, um, like I said, if you're, if you're Catholic, if you have... Um, uh, Unless you've been living under a rock for the last 40 years, you have heard uh, as probably as many times as you ever wanted to the words active participation in, uh, in regard to the liturgy. And, um, you know, I, I got to thinking about this and I actually um, ran across a little booklet a while back. My wife, Betty, works at a, uh, you know, part time at a, a bookshop, a Catholic bookstore. And uh, I was picking her up a while back, and I ran across a booklet by Father Edward Maristani called Loving the Holy Mass. And I thought, well, that's a good title. And um, in the introduction to his book, he, uh, he writes about giving talks to the youth. He's a young priest out talking to youth groups, trying to instill in them and encourage in them a love of the Holy Mass. And, uh, and he said it was extremely frustrating. And the reason he said that is that, that, that after his talk, the first question the kids always ask is always the same. How late can I come to Mass and still fulfill my Sunday obligation? Right, he's trying to get them to love it, and they're trying to say, you know, you know how, how much of it do I have to really be there for? The second question he said is also always the same. How soon can I leave Mass and still fulfill my obligation? And he said that... Uh, their number one impression of the Mass is that it's boring. And I suspect that's not just true of kids and many adults as well, and maybe even you. And I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to get into, um, you know, comparing and contrasting the two forms of the Roman Rite in this regard. But, uh, but just ask why this should be. 
Uh, and first off, I would say, you know, Mass isn't meant to be entertaining. So, you know, if at your parish or whatever, they're trying to make Mass more enjoyable or more relatable or, or you know, whatever, that is at best ill-conceived because Mass isn't about holding your attention. It's about worshiping God. <clears throat> and, of course, like I've, I've said a million times, the, the world can do entertainment far better than your youth director can. Mass is about worshiping God. It's about making present the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ sacramentally here and now. It's about the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ becoming presence, present under the appearance of bread and wine. It is nothing short of a miracle. But just as the majority of people who were present at Calvary didn't understand the true nature of what was going on, what was happening on the cross, you know, you and I, we're not going to understand the true nature of what's happening at Mass on the altar unless we are engaged with the spiritual realities that can only be perceived with the eyes of faith. Now, uh, today, I just I wanted to, to address some concrete ways to help you experiencing those spiritual realities. Uh, I regularly pray five decades of the rosary. You know, I meditate on the joyful, sorrowful, and glorious mysteries, uh, you know, uh, in rotation there. Every now and again, I uh, am inspired to pray the chaplet of John Paul II, also known as the Luminous Mysteries. Uh, you know, here on the, the Virgin Most Powerful app, or following this program, uh, wherever you're listening, is going to be the Daily Rosary. And we have, uh, we included the Joyful Mysteries when we produced that. So it's me and Terry and Jesse uh, praying all these sets of mysteries, not just the the three sets of um, Dominican mysteries, but also the the Luminous Mysteries of John Paul II. Now, according to my prayer book, which and I always pray with a prayer book because it has little meditations in it, the, the petition for the fifth Luminous Mystery, because, you know, every mystery has uh, uh, some virtue attached to it. All right, for example, in the agony of a garden, we pray that God would grant us true contrition. Or at uh, the ascension, we ask for an increase of the virtue of hope and so forth. And um, at the fifth luminous mystery, which is the institution of the Eucharist, the virtue that we pray for is to attain active participation at Mass. Active participation. There it is again. This was obviously a watchword at Vatican II, especially after the introduction of the new Mass, you know, after the Council. But it had already been a maxim of the liturgical movement for a hundred years, all the way back to the time of Pope Pius X and, uh, and even before. In fact, it was Pius X who coined the motto, don't just pray at Mass, pray the Mass, which, of course, in his day, that meant following along with the prayers in a hand missile, which would have, you know, the Latin in one column and the vernacular uh, right next to it. But Pius X thought that, uh, taught that the faithful should know by heart all the parts of the Mass that pertain to them in Latin. So all the responses and, you know, the, the creed, the, the sanctus, the gloria, etc. And this then was echoed by the Council Fathers of Vatican II. Not everybody knows this, but in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, it says that all the faithful should be able to uh, sing or pray the parts of the Mass that are, you know, um, unique to them or specific to them in Latin. So, so this then is active participation. Uh, <laughs> that's a new word, participation. And that is to engage the heart and the mind, the voice and the body in the worship of God. Now, I can remember um, prior to my conversion, I would go to Mass with my 
<clears throat> fiance and then my wife. I converted after we were married for uh, a few years. And I can remember being a non-Catholic and, and how awkward it felt to not know what to say when everybody was responding and not know when to stand or to sit or to kneel. And I recall wondering, and w- what is this all about? What's the purpose of all this standing and sitting and all this stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight? You know, uh, it didn't mean anything to me uh, as an outsider. Years later, <laughs> I remember uh, um, my mom and dad, who were not Catholic, came to my middle daughter's first communion mass, which was a mass in the extraordinary form. And, you know, during the credo at the words, et incarnatus est, everybody kneels. And then when they get to at homo factus est, everybody stands up again. And then we all sit down when the priest sits down while the choir finishes chanting the creed. And then the priest gets up and goes to the altar and says, Dominus Fobiscum, and everybody stands up and says, et conspiratu tuo. And then he says, O Ramos, turns his back to the altar, and we all sit down again. And I remember my poor silver-haired old mother, God rest her soul, was just, you know, didn't know what to do. And she's standing, she's sitting, and finally, when we all sat back down, you know, she had just managed to, to get back to her feet after the Aramis, and we all immediately sat down again. And she said out loud, oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> oh, I'll never forget it. Uh, anyway, but prior, prior to the modern era, uh, prior to the Novus Ordo, really, there, there were no rubrics governing the postures of the congregation. You know, when to stand, sit, or kneel was a matter of local custom. Hence the old saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And, and this all became more universal after the Council of Trent, uh, you know, uh, then the codification of the Roman Rite by Paul V, where everybody was, you know, called upon to do as the Romans do. But even then, there was still no official rules, if you will, for the congregation. And what most people did was simply to imitate the acolytes in choir, right? And uh, the, the chairs on either side of the sanctuary. You know, you stand when they stand, sit when they sit, etc. Uh, and these postures of the acolytes that were in the sanctuary, those were governed by the rubrics. And each posture also had a specific meaning. Now, in any case, there's a lot of activity, uh, uh, you know, in the pew at Holy Mass. But active participation is more than merely going through the motions. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard the joke about a Catholic entering a movie theater and genuflecting before he takes a seat, you know, just out of force of habit. But the point is, it's well to know the meaning of these various postures and to be conscious of them rather than just acting out of routine. So to begin with, the sitting Okay, sitting is a posture of listening. And so we sit for the epistle or for, you know, the, the readings multiple in, in the uh, ordinary form. Uh, we sit for the responsorial psalm or the gradual in the extraordinary form. We also uh, sit for the homily and during the offertory or preparation of the gifts. Sitting shows that we're ready to hear and to receive. We sit to listen. Standing. Now, we stand for prayer. Standing has been a posture of prayer for uh, the Jewish people, the Old Covenant people, since before the time of Christ. Standing during prayer was, is uh, demonstrated in various parts of the Bible. So as Catholics, we continue to use that posture uh, for liturgical prayer today. You know, in some examples at Mass, we stand uh, when we pray the, the introit, right? the, the opening uh, verse, you know, when they process in at the church, we, 
We pray, uh, stand during the opening prayer, which is called the Collect. We stand for the Lord's Prayer. We stand for the prayers of the faithful in the Novus Ordo, etc. Uh, we stand for the preface before the uh, before the, the, the uh, canon, right? The Eucharistic prayer. We also stand for the creed, uh, the recitation of what Christians have believed from the earliest times. So we stand to affirm our unity and our beliefs uh, as Catholic Christians. Uh, we also stand for the gospel. Now, in our culture, standing is a sign of respect. But And we certainly have, uh, you know, a particular respect for the gospel, which is the words and deeds of Jesus himself. But traditionally, standing for the gospel re- represented being prepared to take the gospel into the world, right? To be on your feet, to be ready to share and to defend the gospel, or in, in other words, to stand up for the gospel, okay? And then finally, you know, we stand for the procession when they process in and uh, when they press out, process out, both the beginning and end of Mass, it's a sign of respect for the, for the celebrant who, uh, you know, is acting in persona Christi. And, and then finally, we have the kneeling. So when you go to enter a pew, uh, if the tabernacle is reserved in the sanctuary, you genuflect before you uh, take your seat. Touch a knee to the floor to acknowledge the presence of Christ in the Eucharist in the tabernacle. Because, of course, we believe that he is present there body, blood, soul, and divinity. All right, a little bit more on this, and then uh, uh, talk about Our Lady of Sorrows when we come back for round four on No Nonsense Catholic, here on Virgin's Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. Uh, We're talking about the various postures that we use at the Holy Mass as the congregation, and we had just gotten to kneeling, and I was talking about genuflecting uh, before entering the pew if the Blessed Sacrament is reserved in the sanctuary, because that's what you're genuflecting. You're genuflecting before the presence of the Lord. You know, as Catholics, we believe that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant it literally and that uh, he's veiled under the appearance of bread and wine, but he is truly present there. And, and it's something the very earliest Christians believed and have continued to believe right through to the present day. So we acknowledge that by genuflection. Uh, if, if the Blessed Sacrament is not reserved on the altar, if it's in a, a Eucharistic chapel or something uh, outside of, of the sanctuary, then you bow uh, profoundly before the altar, because that's where the sacrifice takes place. And unfortunately, I've seen in recent years uh, uh, fewer and fewer Catholics genuflecting, bowing, or, or anything. You know, it's now now they're, instead of acting like a Catholic in a movie theater, they're acting like a, a movie theater patron in a church. And I think that's unfortunate, because genuflection is a powerful sign that demonstrates that we truly believe that Jesus is present in the tabernacle, that Jesus is Lord, uh, to whom every knee must bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And then we get to, uh, finally, kneeling proper. You know, uh, kneeling is a posture of something more than respect. I remember <clears throat> years ago in, in Los Angeles, up in Canada, that uh, the bishops wanted people to stand through the consecration. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people kind of uh, uh, balked at that, and they said, well, but it's because in our 
culture, we stand out of respect, right? So when a judge comes into a courtroom, you stand. And my response to that is, of course, you're showing respect, uh, human respect to that judge for his office by standing. But the, the only person you kneel before is God. Kneeling is a unique posture, not of respect, but of worship. So another time when we kneel is during the consecration, when Jesus Christ becomes present on the altar, before and after Holy Communion. Uh, we kneel because we believe that Jesus is truly present on the altar, and, and he's present in the Blessed Sacrament. That's what makes it Holy Communion. You know, and if you believe you're literally in the presence of Jesus himself, falling to your knees is the natural thing to do. So we always kneel during that part of the Mass, and we remain kneeling until the elements are put back in the tabernacle and the tabernacle is closed, or and, until the, the saboria leaves the sanctuary to go back to being reserved in the tabernacle in the, the chapel or wherever. The thing is, our bodily attitudes are meaningful. Uh, I tell my RCIA students, my catechumens, these people who are preparing to receive that sacramental grand slam of baptism, First Holy Communion, Confirmation all in one Mass, that when they approach the sanctuary to receive the Blessed Sacrament, they should do so with their hands folded and their eyes downcast. And I suppose some people think that in this day and age, maybe that's a little extreme. But, you know, I have to ask you, would it be better to tell them to approach the Blessed Sacrament with, you know, eyes roaming and arms swinging, you know, <laughs> to ask the question is to answer it. Because the way we move our body both reflects the state of our mind and affects the state of our mind. If you're sitting, standing, kneeling all at the right times and your heart isn't in it, uh, or if you're distracted or you're not conscious of the reason why you're doing it in the first place, then you will lose the benefit uh, that those postures are meant to accomplish. And if you come, on the other hand, though, you come into Holy Mass and you genuflect towards the tabernacle because you're humbly acknowledging Christ's true presence, and if you sit intent on listening with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and you stand with, with your heart focused on prayer, and you kneel in adoration in the presence of your Savior, then your actions are true, quote-unquote, active participation and not just going through the motions. And that's no nonsense. All right. I mentioned uh, last week and again a couple of times today that September is especially dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrow. It's also uh, known sometimes as the month of Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. And um, I did a DVD and an audio version of it, uh, but a DVD a few years back on the Seven Sorrows and devotion to the Seven Sorrows. And if you're interested, you can go uh, to formed.org. And, you know, if you have a formed membership or your parish has a formed membership, you can go there and access it for free. And if not, you can uh, go to promultismedia.com and order yourself one. Uh, either as a download or whatever. I, I'm, I'm not here to do a commercial. The point is, <laughs> I did a presentation on the Seven Sorrows. And um, I just wanted to mention, it's, what, it's a wonderful devotion. It's ancient devotion. Uh, the Sorrows of Mary, of course, are scriptural. And they are as follows. The first is the prophecy of Simeon from Luke chapter 2. Then the flight into Egypt from Matthew chapter 2. The loss of the child Jesus for three days, which is from Luke 2. The carrying of the cross, uh, you know, variously in the Gospels, I think of John 19. Um, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus uh, is number five. Number six, Jesus is taken down from the cross. 
And number seven, Jesus is laid in the tomb. Our Lady was there for all of these things, experiencing that sorrow that pierced her soul like a sword. It's one of my favorite images of Our Lady of Sorrows is, um, I think it's 19th century, has a medieval feel to it. And it's Our Lady, you know, uh, crowned, but with her eyes downcast and actually seven swords piercing her immaculate heart. It is, you know, I mean, as a visual representation, very powerful. And so um, Our Lady actually appeared to uh, St. Gertrude back in the 14th century. No, no, St. Bridget of Sweden in the 14th century, back in the 1300s, and made seven promises for those who would pray seven Hail Marys every day in honor of each of her seven sorrows. She said, I will grant peace to their families. They will be enlightened about the divine mysteries. I will console them in their pains and I will accompany them in their work. Number four, I will give them as much as they ask for as long as it does not oppose the adorable will of my divine Son or the sanctification of their souls. Number five, I will defend them in their spiritual battles with the infernal enemy and I will protect them at every instant of their lives. Number six, I will visibly help them at the moment of their death they will see the face of their mother. That alone is, is worth uh, practicing this devotion. And number seven, I have obtained this grace from my divine son that those who propagate this devotion to my tears and sorrows will be taken directly from this earthly life to eternal happiness since all their sins will be forgiven and my son will be their eternal consolation and joy. Beautiful. There's also a, a, a rosary of the seven sorrows. Uh, it's also known as the uh, Servite Rosary. And there's a special chaplet of seven groups of uh, Hail Marys. And, um, and that's also included in that uh, presentation that I did that you can go to formed.org and, and check out more about that. Or just go online. This, you know, uh, your Catholic bookstore, any place is going to have um, information about devotion to the Seven Sorrows, devotion to the Dolores, as they're called, of Our Lady, and uh, very worthwhile, especially, most especially, during this particular month that is uh, annually devoted to Our Lady of Sorrows. And she's also known as Our Lady Queen of Martyrs, and it's well to remember that we uh, should pray for those who are being persecuted for their Christian faith. There's probably there's wide, more widespread persecution, more people that are being um, that are suffering for their faith today, right now today, probably that at, at any time in our two thousand year history. So extremely important uh, um, that we remember during this month the martyrs that we pray for, uh, pray to those martyrs that have been raised to the altars, and pray for those martyrs that are suffering persecution today, and uh, to be devoted to our Lady, especially in her seven sorrows. All right, you know what? I got a couple of minutes left. I did last week, um, no, the week before last, we did a segment on 10 memorable sayings of our Lord. We only got through eight of them. So I'm going to do one now, probably another one next week, just to, uh, to round it out, because I said I would. All right, number nine on that list was from John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And those words were said in the context of our Lord's Eucharistic discourse, 
where he was insisting on his real presence in the Eucharist. And it was not being well received, as you, as you might remember. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Who can listen to this, they said. And so this verse is, is teaching the necessity of grace, that it's grace that draws us by enlightening us and awakening in us a desire for salvation. But it does not compel. God leaves us at perfect liberty to either obey or to resist the attractions of grace. This is the awesome power of free will. To use our free will in cooperation with the divine will is the great work of this life. And Jesus says, if we cooperate with his grace, he will raise us on the last day. That's a direct reference, by the way, to the 11th article of the Apostles' Creed, the resurrection of the body. He's saying that the resurrection of the body is connected to receiving his body and blood in the Holy Eucharist. And that's no nonsense. Um, You know what? On that note, I wanted to let you know, if you're not already aware, that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is uh, um, promoting right now a Eucharistic revival. They are promoting Eucharistic adoration. They are promoting um, Eucharistic education so that Catholics have, you know, really do have a grasp of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And this is actually in response to the fact that, uh, you know, polling data has shown that, you know, amongst, you know, certain demographics, uh, like I think those born after a certain year, um, you know, 70% of a large group of Catholics don't know the church's teaching on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, which is absolutely central to the Catholic faith. It, 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 it's a foundational uh, doctrine. And so it's really important. And I, and I applaud them for, for uh, you know, getting down to the business of making sure that Catholics understand that Christ is really present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. And it's a good thing because Eucharistic adoration, uh, really, as we understand it today, began about 800 years ago, back in the Middle Ages. And, um, and today, there are actually more Catholics spending an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament every day uh, during our time than at any time in our history. And that's a great thing and something that needs to be promoted. We need to, to, to get those numbers up. We need to spend time with our Eucharistic Lord. And even if you, know, if you can make it to Mass one day a week other than Sunday, you know, once out of obligation and once out of love, spend a few minutes before Mass, a few minutes after Mass in the presence of our Lord in the Holy Eucharist and see if it doesn't change your life and the lives of the people that you're praying for. Until next time, I want to say thank you so very much for being with us. Um, Uh, and for everything that you do to support Virgin Most Powerful and our holy faith. May God richly bless you and your family.